have a dream that one day we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. The Historian's Magazine Podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Historian's Magazine podcast, the podcast where we bring history to you in an accessible way from some of the world's most exciting historians. The Historian's Magazine podcast is produced and presented by past and present media, the home of accessible history. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Historian's Magazine podcast. I'm Jackson Van Uden, your host for the podcast, and today I'm speaking to James Holland and Keith Burns all about their brand new book together. But before we learn about their brand new book and we talk to James and Keith, I will leave you with a message from our supporters. Now I know you're fascinated by history because you are listening to the Historians Magazine podcast. But are you interested in the history of art and culture? Do you want to learn more about works of art, famous artists or exciting archaeological discoveries? If you do, do you want to learn about it through free quality art history content? If that is something that appeals to you, look no further than Accessible Art History, the podcast. This is a weekly podcast where it explores all of these topics and so much more in such an accessible and entertaining way. The goal of this podcast and accessible art history is to provide history, knowledge, content and fun whilst learning. Now you can listen to this podcast and download it through any major podcast player, be that Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever you listen to your podcast on. So that is Accessible Art History, the podcast. Now here at the Historians Magazine, we love hearing and learning about history that isn't often touched upon in history textbooks or in traditional history media. And one place that we love to go and learn about this kind of history is the Past podcast with Veronica Fortune. Now, Past is the podcast about those who would never rule. So if you've ever been curious about why women couldn't inherit the throne of France or how the Hundred Years' War started, this is the show for you. Now, Veronica covers the almost kings and queens of history and the reasons why they would never rule, which is an amazing idea, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. So that is The Past Podcast, P-A-S-S-E-D, The Past Podcast. So hello and welcome to the Historians Magazine podcast. Today we are speaking to historian and author James Holland and illustrator Keith Burns, all about their new book together, The Second World War and Illustrated History. How are you both doing? Uh, yeah, all right, thank you. Yeah, not too, not too bad. Enjoying the sunshine, I have to yeah. say. Long may it continue. Same <laughs> here, but I'm in Ireland on, on holiday in a, in a relative's house, but I'm having a great time. And it's not no, raining. It's been sunny for It's great. Well, that, <laughs> I mean, that's the perfect point about this year, isn't it? There's been hardly any rain so far. Well, it so, rained and rained and rained February and March. I mean, it just didn't stop, so I'm, I'm quite ready for it to... <laughs> to be have a sunny spell as long as it's still okay at the end of june that's all i really worry yeah, about because um, oh. i know you want to talk about this a little bit later jackson but that's when the chalk valley history festival is and you know it just works so much better when it's sunny <laughs> yeah i, I, I still remember the Annus horribilis which was 2016 when we were supposed to be commemorating the 100th anniversary of the uh, of the Somme. And, of course, it really, really should have been the 100th anniversary of Passchendaele because the whole site was just one big <laughs> quagmire of mud. It was absolutely horrific. And it's quite funny because we, we get people um, coming up and sort of going, oh, I remember the mud year and, you know, oh, such larks, we wore our wellies and we had so much fun. And you're thinking, yeah, well, okay, that's good. Um, but I'll tell you what, it wasn't fun running it at all. Really was no, so every I, I, year I we get a little bit sweaty about the weather. <laughs> I don't particularly want to be camping in in the mud and in the rain, no. so I'm I'm no. praying, praying like you are for it to be but, sunny. But, but so far it looks okay. It looks all right. So fingers crossed. I'm just looking at On my touch wood. That's... My my high powered weather app. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you both about where you got the idea of the book from and, and working together, because uh, illustrated histories. Obviously, you're working together as a pair. One of you is the illustrator, one is the author. Where did you get the idea to work together and the idea for the book from? Well, I'm going to be brutally honest here. 
Um, I didn't have an idea and nor did Keith. Yeah. It was Roland White's idea. Yeah. <laughs> so Roland is a, is a really, really old friend of mine. I've known him for 30 years or so. Um, and he is a brilliant historian in his own right. He wrote Vulcan 607, um, Power 809 um, and various others. He's just doing an amazing book at the moment about the mosquito raid on Copenhagen um, at the end of the Second World War. Uh, he's also, though, a publisher at Penguin Books and... Um, he, he he basically put us together. So he he got us to do all these Ladybird books, these Ladybird experts. Um, and then we realised actually what was really needed was a single volume. Mm. Um, but I already knew of Keith Keith in a big way because, you know, I kind of I've, I have a one or two of those sort of prints. There's sort of old school aviation art prints that are signed by Johnny Johnson and Douglas Bader. You know, I think my wife got me one once, and it's and it's got a sort of you know you know it's an absolute aces high kind of classic kind of aviation art thing and i've always quite liked them but i've kind of they always just look so static to me there's there's no energy and there's no movement to them and then there was a there was an exhibition down opposite st james's park there's that big row if you you know off on the mall there's a big sort of row of white buildings and, and there was a if i remember right it was kind of down there it was a big exhibition of going kind of aviation art and cave had some work up there and i remember thinking wow that's just like totally breaking all the rules but it's completely brilliant and it had so much energy and movement to it so when Ronan came up with this idea and he said and I really want to put you together with this amazing artist called Keith Burns I went I know all about Keith he's absolutely amazing yeah bring it on uh and then we and then we hooked up one day in London and we got on like house on fire and that you know it was just we, we were off weren't we Keith? yeah yeah I remember um back probably about 15 years ago when you know, before there were such things as podcasts and, you know, real good internet stuff. Yeah. I remember coming across your um, website and you had a blog up there and you had um, some images. Remember them amazing comics in the 60s and 70s, Air Aces, the Battle Picture Library and all them. And you'd had a post up there about, does anyone know anything about these comics? And you had some of the artwork up there. And I'd, and I just got, it was just before a book had come out by a fellow called David Roach, um, who was an amazing illustrator in his, in his own right. But, he was fascinated by all that work, artwork and he, um, he'd he been researching it and because he tends to do books on yeah. illustration, he was ringing around the different publishers that used to publish this thing and as he was chatting to people in an yeah. interview and he, people kept mentioning like a, a, a warehouse uh, and he was kind of going, oh, that sounds interesting and then uh, he, he spoke to some fellow who said, you know, well, the art in the warehouse and blah, blah, blah and he's like, hold on, you still got all the artwork. So it turned out they still had all the original covers of them comics and so he he spoke to the fellow and managed to get into the warehouse and he went and found just like a pallet with all these original covers all piled up from all these amazing artists from all around europe and um, my favorite being a fellow called pino de Lorca, which which is one of the ones that was on yeah yeah because there was a there was a massive school yeah, of them yeah. wasn't there up in in yeah. milan doing all this in the 50s and 1960s yeah. and he and they were, uh, and why were they all in Milan? And why were they all Italian? I, know, I don't yeah. know. They just were. And, and then, but they, they, a lot of them came over to work in studios over here. So in London, you'd get all these making right. of Spanish and Italian artists mixing with the English. There wasn't many English actually. It always tend to be European fellas. But he, he so he, he got to go to this warehouse and he found a pallet with all just piled up, and it was just like you know open to the elements almost, not completely, but it was damp and everything. Oh my and god! While he was rummaging through, yeah. it, going, oh, it was like you know some proper kind of Indiana Jones type discovery of all this amazing art. Yeah, he's going through, and then as he looked down, he realised he was standing on the covers as well. So they were so badly looked after, <laughs> he was just stood on them in all the you know, the grot that was on the floor. So he then went about um, getting them recorded and properly photographed, and then they published a book called. Um, the art of war. Yeah, ah, it's yeah. war. And then it was them. It's, I've got it's that. So I managed to get. <laughs> it's amazing it's that book. Astounding. It's yeah. well fun. And that level. was the thing that was on your website. Yeah. You'd put the, um, you know, you because you were you were looking obviously with your eyes that you, you you knew the types of Spitfire and the marks on the fuck was everything, and, and you were amazed at how everything was completely accurate. Like you couldn't find a mistake anywhere. Totally. Yeah. So then, but then no. that book, then reading that book, there was two of them that were released. Um, then sent me down that path of kind of really looking at all that artwork and doing it and then they end up doing commando comics and you know the covers and doing that kind of stuff well you've done loads of loads of comics haven't yeah, you yeah. loads of comic books and 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 uh i mean and it's interesting isn't it because it's it's a different type oh, completely, of art yeah but what's fascinating about that you, different you know there's no better training than comics it's easily the hardest illustration job you could possibly do because of the amount of work you have to do and the amount of pressure on the you know you've got 20 
is a 22 page to do and possibly a cover in in a month you know and if you do more work to aviation and you're doing the kind of stuff i was doing where you've got there was what was one where i worked with garth and it was a johnny red one and it, it was oh, a yeah. squadron of um a squadron of... and that's all color as well isn't it i mean oh yeah but color. I, don't, I don't have to do that bit on that bit i just do the ink yeah someone oh, else okay, it. but i remember one there was a squadron of 12 okay. po2s and they were flying over the destroyed Stalingrad. They were being protected by a, um, a squadron of Lag Threes or something. So it was twelve. Then. And yeah. then they were being attacked. quite a lot going yeah, on. And, and then they were being attacked by you know a squadron one hundred nine. So it was like thirty six aircraft over burning Stalingrad, and you had to make a dramatic. <laughs> oh my god! But, see, but there's nothing better than that than trying to you know trying to figure out the the kind of kinetic energy of flight and dogfights and you know just the the physicality of the whole thing. And so then to do. But you you do have that though. You you you've really nailed that that sense of you've always had that that sense of movement. And I remember so clearly seeing that exhibition in London. And 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 I can't, you can't. I guess you'd only had about six to eight, maybe a dozen pictures up at most. Six it wasn't very many. Yeah, put six in. But I remember there was a plane. Okay, maybe my memory's tr- tr- playing tricks. But I remember there was a there was a plane with just like a red background or a kind of you know like a non sky color background, and it was going downwards. And everything about it just said, "I'm going really fast," <laughs> and, uh, and it was fantastic. And actually, one of the feature of uh, that you've done brilliantly with 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 all the illustrations in this book is. Again, the kind of sort of the funky angles and the kind of sense of of movement and the way you're looking at it. You know, you're looking at a typhoon attacking, uh, you know, attacking a, a a column in the Falaise Gap, Ooh. in you know, in August 1944. But you're looking at it effectively from the top wing yeah. of the of the typhoon as it's banking and looking yeah, down. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. So all those those different different perspectives yeah, and stuff yeah. really well, really I, bring I, it alive. I wanted to, I wanted to touch upon your uh, your <laughs> what you wanted to do was get a word <laughs> in edgeway. <entry. laughs> well, you can tell that you two are really good friends, and it's great to see. You know, it's uh, you know you clearly tell that you both enjoyed working together on this. But I, I wanted to pick up on that point of aircraft. Really, you know, when you were illustrating the Battle of Britain, obviously you've had to illustrate an awful lot of aircraft. What kind of challenges did you encounter when? illustrating parts of the battle of britain keith well because i've done it in, in co- everything that i've you know is in the book all comes from what i've kind of spent ages figuring out in comics so you have to make everything look accurate make everything look believable then you have to bring loads of elements together you know because so, there's no there's no point like there's a couple of times we had to refer to photographs but in general remember roland saying that um he wanted you know us to be able to illustrate things that you couldn't possibly take a photograph of you know, which is why, you know, with James saying about being on the end of the typhoon line and looking down as if you're on the wing. So you're constantly trying to come up with, you, well, you kind of imagine it in your head as to what's going on. And then you put yourself somewhere in there to make the kind of most interesting compositions. But when you're doing all the aircraft, because of the um, same process as comics, I, I build a model. So, you know, I build a Tamiya Airfix or whatever I can get my hands on that is the most accurate. So I build it, paint it and put the markings on and then, you know, take it out and photograph it in sunlight. So you're getting all the colours and everything once the daylight hits it, the whole thing changes. So you get like shadow reflected light. Um, and then, you know, I'd only have one Spitfire though. And, you know, for the Battle of Britain one, you're doing loads of them or you're doing hurricanes or whatever it is. So then you just laboriously kind of photographing every one of them in the correct angle and then composing it in Photoshop to make it look like they all sit together right. And it's very difficult when you're doing an aircraft. If you get a slightly off angle, especially when you've got two aircraft, it, the whole thing looks completely wrong. You know, so they have to be sitting in the correct perspective and they have to be following the same paths or they have to look like they're, you know, they're in the same kind of space. Um, so it's a, a ridiculous amount of faffing, you know, trying to get it to look right. <laughs> yeah, but we were talking the other day, weren't we, about about the old techniques of the camera obscuring yeah. and the whole idea that they had this in, in the sort of, you know, Hans Holbein was using this technique to, because, you know, one of the big things about, about, about the Renaissance art is it suddenly goes from being kind of sort of an impression and, and dodgy perspective mm-hmm. and all the rest of it to suddenly being incredibly accurate. And and how do they do that? And they do that, don't they, by, by this reflection of glass and it goes up and it, and it effectively projects an image on a, on a screen mm-hmm. upside down, which you then sketch yeah. out and then you've got all your proportions right. And it's kind of... It's almost like an extension of that in a way, isn't it? With the photoshopping and getting it yeah, all right yeah. and everything, and you you get your proportions. Because yeah. I mean, I spent years drawing. And I mean, you know, I could sit down and have done it, but it, it takes forever sitting down and drawing a Spitfire, you know, with a, a model in front of you and just drawing it from sight. 
But to do that over and over again when you've got, you know, fairly horrendous deadlines, I just had to figure out a way yeah, yeah, fi- figure out a, a way of turning it into an industrial process to knock all these paintings out. And that was the quickest way of building the models, photographing them, putting them all together in Photoshop and then projecting it onto like I'd have mount boards. So I'd do it all in one go. So you'd get all the reference together, project them all. Then you'd have all your twenty-four, you know, penciled pages ready to go and then and then you get to painting. But it, it most of the time goes into doing the research and getting all the all the reference together because once it gets down I'm, I'm, I'm making those airfix models yeah, yeah. That's yeah, this is it, yeah. <laughs> luckily I, I did have a friend who helped me out on um because i had a, a fair library of um aircraft you know because i enjoyed making them but when it comes to tanks and trucks and ships it was <laughs> all got yeah. finicky so luckily i had a friend a friend that did them but yeah he was he was like turning up with you know eight marks battleships yeah <laughs> oh yeah i meant to send you a photograph there's a lot going on on a battleship yeah. And they, but they, even that, even the, the absolute fascination of having, you know, a bunch of battleships all on the same scale next to an aircraft carrier, next to a U-boat, next to a Liberty ship, and then landed crafts and seeing them all lined up. <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So I get great joy. So you get the proportions. Yeah. So yeah. A, a U-boat pulled up alongside a a, um, a, a battleship, yeah. it looks it's that t- small. It's absolutely tiny. You can't, yeah, because, I mean, when have you ever seen a photograph? I'm sure there's one out, some, out there somewhere. A U-boat <laughs> next to a battleship. And when you see it in that scale, and that yeah, yeah. it's absolutely unreal. It's how tiny it looks. So across across this book, James, you've you've looked at not just the European theatre of war with the Battle of Britain and and the European fronts, but you know what I think is quite interesting and quite important that you covered is you've covered a lot of non-European fronts within the conflict. You know, such as Burma um, and the Pacific War as well. Yeah, you know, I know these are part of World War Two. Why? Did you feel it was important to include these and include the stories that you did um, from these? Well, I think to a certain extent we kind of we, we, we tend to be a bit sort of Eurocentric when we when we look at the Second World War. Um, I mean, this this is supposed to be an overview of of the war, but with a slightly kind of British centric take. Um, but I wanted to tell the whole story, and you know, there's obviously there's huge bits that that aren't included you know you you don't get an awful lot about romania or bulgaria's war and the, the, the i don't even think the brazilians are mentioned for example um so there's lots of bits that you can't possibly cover and i probably don't do enough on on the holocaust really probably but you know what what this is supposed to be is an introduction this is an overview and it's also supposed to be um you know a, a kind of sort of narrative of my thesis on the second world war which is is that you know the vast majority of 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 narrative histories documentaries and all the rest of it writing about the second world war only do two of the three levels so if you understand that war is fought on three levels the strategic operations tactical the strategic is obviously the big picture stuff it's kind of you know your commanders it's churchill roosevelt hitler we know what they're trying to do get to berlin conquer britain whatever you know that's your that's your strategic level then you've got the tactical level which is you know bloke in spitfire uh um infantrymen jumping out of a landing craft you know it's the actual fighting bit the kinetic bit of of the war that's what everyone focuses on i mean if if you read a narrative history you'll get lots and lots about what it was like being in a tank or what it's like you know fighting through Aachen or you know Stalingrad or whatever you'll get lots of of, of what Montgomery's thinking or or Chukov or whoever the commander might be but what you don't get is how all this works you know what why is it that Britain has a quite a small army but a massive navy and air force and the Red Army the Soviet Union doesn't really have much of an as a navy but not much of one but has an absolutely vast number of infantry divisions what, what who's making that that decision and why is that and it's all to do with you know economics politics geography place in the world at the time you know stature in the world a whole host of things and you know what what people forget because britain has been you know so reduced in in terms of um, military scale and and global scale is that britain in 1939 had the world's largest navy had the world's largest merchant navy um, had a burgeoning air force and had a tiny army because traditionally we do, and that's because we're an island nation and we've got a we've got an you know you know an overseas empire and we've also got a trade empire which goes be you know is extra imperial. So what I mean by that is Britain owns most of Argentina in 1939, but Argentina the Argentine is not part of the British Empire, but 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 private enterprises owned by the British own 
most of the port facilities, most of the railways, most of the farms in Argentina. So it's got that global reach and it's got access to natural resources, which you need for an, an ores and all sorts of stuff and oil and things, which you need to prosecute a war that Germany, frankly, can only dream of. And when we think of Germany, we're just obsessed with this whole idea of the Blitzkrieg, the, you know, the, the Nazi war machine, suggesting that the whole thing is a machine. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating, I think, that, that Germany is not particularly automotive at all in 1939. I mean, if you look at your Whitaker's Almanac, it'll tell you all sorts of amazing statistics. And it'll tell, show you that, that, that there are 106 people in Italy for every motorised vehicle whereas there are 47 Germans for every motorised vehicle in Germany. But that figure is 14 in Britain, 8 in France, and 3 in the USA. Perhaps no surprise about the USA, but but that yeah. has a massive implication because what that suggests is that a vast country like the USA has already got a massive amount of mechanisation, large amount of, you know, it's a very automotive society. And so when you need to sort of switch that from civilian to military use, actually the leap isn't that huge. And there's also a huge amount of advantages of that because because what you what it means is there's lots of people who already know how to tinker with an engine and strip it down and you know replace a gasket or, or ball bearings or, or piston rings or whatever it might be and that's jolly useful if you want to become a mechanized army with lots of Sherman tanks and trucks and you know jeeps and WC fifty ones and all the rest of it then then having that knowledge is really really useful whereas Germany doesn't have that. It, you know, and if you don't have a very automotive society, you don't have a lot of, of workshops and you don't have a lot of garages and you don't have a lot of petrol stations and you don't have a lot of people who know how to drive and you don't, and therefore you don't have, have a lot of people who know how to mend them and tinker with them. And that's a problem. You can't just click your fingers and go, I want to be mechanised. And so what you're getting is you're getting an army which is completely designed for short, sharp operations where your spearhead is doing 80% of the work. And that spearhead is mechanised, but the rest of it isn't. And that's fine if you're going to beat France in six weeks, but it's a massive problem if the war then goes on for five years or six years and, and, and you're, you're coming up against an opposition which includes the Soviet Union with a factor of you know, infinite amount of manpower, Britain, which is highly mechanised and, and I mean, effectively totally mechanised and has huge global reach and huge access to the world's oceans and shipping and all the rest of it, and the United States, which is in a completely different league all of its own. You know, and... and, and by the end of 1941, Germany, for all its, you know, tactical chutzpah and everything, is completely un- outgunned because it hasn't got one enemy, which it did in the beginning of June 1941, which was Britain, albeit Britain plus dominions and empire. Um, it's now got three enemies, the Soviet Union, the United States of America and Britain plus dominions and empire. And that's a massive problem if you're Germany. And so I would argue that, that, you know, they're not even going to, they haven't got hope of winning by that point. What What is uncertain is how the, the course of the war is going to, going to go and, and, and how long it will last and all those sort of things. And actually, it's pretty much the same situation with Imperial Japan, which has done the same thing, which is under mechanized, doesn't have much global reach, um, doesn't have access, uh, does have access to the world's oceans, but it's got a tiny merchant fleet and, 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 and. Uh, compared to, say, Britain, doesn't have the backstory of empire and and all the rest of it. Is not a big country, so you know needs overseas possessions, which is why it's gone to war in the first place. And it's all gone horribly wrong in China, which is why it then needs to go into, you know, what is now Vietnam, what was Indochina. It's why it needs to invade um, Singapore and Malaya. It's why it needs to go into Burma because that's as oil wood and all the rest of it. But even once they do that, they then discover that they haven't got the shipping and the manpower and the and the wherewithal to transport to, to transfer that huge sudden glut of, of materials into war. And I think all that stuff is absolutely fascinating because suddenly it contextualizes everything. It makes you realize why, what is happening, where it is happening, and in the nature it's happening. And that's so much more interesting than just telling the story of why Montgomery's scratching his nuts or, <laughs> or someone's in a trench. No, I totally agree. The, like, the contextualizing things are so important and, and when you like talk about mechanization and talking about the different powers within the war it makes yeah. it so much more interesting um, you know there's, there's a reason yeah. why germans have tiger tanks and, and we're very happy with our shermans thank you very much and our cromwell's <laughs> awesome tank by the way and and, and you, you know that needs explaining and, and you know i also wanted to to make it clear uh, you, you know keith did that brilliant picture of that uh, uh, of the tractor plowing 
you know, the, the, the huge revolution that took place in British farming in the time, you know, which is kind of, you know, not really, really recognised. You know, everyone, I mean, when I was growing up, everyone was banging on about rationing and stuff. But trust me, <laughs> rationing in this country was absolutely as nothing compared to the rest of Europe. I mean, or, you know, Germany introduced rationing in the summer of 1939. Very tentative rationing happened in this country at the beginning of 1940 and was then kind of sort of repeatedly upgraded. But everyone had enough to eat. And the whole point of the way the rationing was worked was not because we had a shortage of food. It was because we wanted to make sure that everyone in the country had a balanced diet. Everyone got enough. That if you were in a factory or worked down the mines or whatever, you got more than someone who, was doing, who wasn't doing such physical labor. And you um, also wanted to free up shipping so that you can spend more shipping, use more shipping for, for transporting Sherman tanks and aircraft bits and you know, ammunition or whatever, and, and less on grain and food. And that was an incredibly efficient system. The transformation in English farming was absolutely enormous. And at no point did the U-boats get close to defeating us in the Battle of the Atlantic. The Battle of the Atlantic is, is absolutely fascinating and it's the key, the key theatre, really, because everything, for, certainly from the, from the Western War point of view, from defeating Nazi Germany, everything is coming into Britain, everything is coming through the Atlantic, whether it's coming from Australia, India, or the United States or Canada. It's all coming through the Atlantic. So that's absolutely vital. And understanding how Britain's trying to plan and that, that, it's, that, that rationing is not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength. And is all part of your bigger strategy and your part of your operational plan is really key to the whole thing. And most people just don't know that. And I think it's really interesting. I think with I think with the way you explain it and the way you've written about it, you, you're certainly challenging conceptions that people have about World War Two, not only abroad but at home as well, which I think is definitely needed as we come to, you know, getting away from a Western centric, leader centric view of World War Two. Now, Keith, I want I want to ask you, you know. In a book full of you know so many powerful illustrations that you you've created, which was your favourite part of the book to illustrate for and why? Well, it's, it's really tricky. One I was going through trying to find some, um, and there was ones I forgot I'd even done when I was looking through because it seems long ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, since we since we started, but I think the ones that I was I started to enjoy towards the end was um because at the start I was trying to make everything really technically accurate, and it was because the, the first couple of books. Um, I was, I was quite nervous about painting all of it because I hadn't done, obviously I hadn't done Ladybird books um, kind of style before. But what was great about it was I didn't actually want specifically any kind of style. I just said, you know, you kind of do what you want. But I, I, from looking back over the whole thing, over the five years, looking at all the illustrations, it was interesting to see that the first couple of books were really quite tight. You know, where I could see I was spending way too much time on illustrations and make, and really fussing over them. But as it went on and they kind of loosened up and also as I almost messed up a couple of deadlines and, and had to fe- had to speed up just to make them. And, and but uh, yet yeah, so then as they were going in, they're going, oh, we quite like this looser style. So over time, I kind of relaxed into it. And then towards the end, the ones that I like are the ones I was almost trying to be like, um, you know, like the official war artist that went away and tried to paint quickly on the scene. So we're just capturing as much information as I could in a quick amount of time. So I started doing that towards the end and loosening up and, and, and painting as if I was in front of the subject. So when there's, you know, soldiers sitting around doing something, even if they're just sitting having a cup of tea and preparing for something, that was the kind of approach I was doing to it. So, yeah, it's, it's probably them ones, actually, because it's especially when you've got humans in the picture. I mean, I love the ones where all the aircraft and the ships and that, but I always try and fit people in there somewhere because otherwise it's like, you know, there's a, spit, a spitfire in a in the sunset, although it's, you know, all very pretty and everything, it doesn't really engage people so much, but as soon as you put people in there interacting with each other, or the aircraft, the ships, whatever it might be, then people tend to, you know, relate automatically and that all, again, comes from comics because it's all about storytelling so they, they, I think they're the ones that I, I like the best something where, you know, even ones where they're in theory, it's, it, it, they're quite kind of brutal images or quite distressing images, you try and have it where people are trying to help each other within that situation as well I mean, you can certainly tell as you go through the book that you're really enjoying creating some of these illustrations yeah. and that you are telling a story because they do align with what James is writing yeah. about. James, what's your favourite part to to write in the book then? Well, for me, actually, the stuff that I hadn't really visited before in a writing form, I mean, you know, I've taught Ab Finitum about all of this stuff. So, you know, <laughs> um, particularly since I started doing the podcast with, with Al Murray, you know, you know, just sticking to the stuff that I've already written about that's no longer enough you know you need to have a pretty pretty global view of the war and 
Um, so for me, all the stuff about the Pacific and, and the Far East and China, uh, that that's the stuff that's been the most interesting because it's the first time I've written about it. So it's kind of completely fresh. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging writing this because, you know, I'm, you know, you know, when you write a big, big normal narrative history, you, you can't, you know, you've got a word limit, but you can afford to kind of go on a bit. <laughs> but, but, but when you're doing this, it's, you know, it's whatever it is, 300 words per page or I can't remember what it was, something like that. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty tight and, and, and plotting out the chapter and where, where you're going to put what and what you're going to say. Well, the, the, the thing I find slightly frustrating is it's all complementalized into, into chapters and chunks. And I think the only way really to tell the second world war is, 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 purely chronologically so it kind of slightly rankles me that there's a whole chapter on the on the battle of the atlantic and it doesn't sort of you know it's not interwoven but in a book like this it just there's no other way to do it it just wouldn't work so you know i hope you're what you're hoping to do is sort of give people a little taster a little sort of introduce unlock a few doors um and the great thing is is with all those amazing 250 illustrations you know they're all pretty much in 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 color of some form and you know the black and white. Uh, you know, the Second World War is still it's still largely a monochrome black and white episode in our history, and and so it's really nice when you see color. I think, and and it, again, it just gives it a whole load of life. It's interesting. I've just been looking at a whole load of artwork from from uh, that was painted by official war artists in Italy. You know, from from uh, um, Edward R. Dizzoni to Edward Sego to a whole load of of Canadian and New Zealand artists. And it's so it's so much more alive yeah, in yeah. many cases than the photo, black yeah. and white photographs because you've got this you've got a sense of kind of movement and color mm. and 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 it, it 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 creates an impression in a way that photographs sometimes just don't. I mean, equally, I've come across some amazing photographs which are, are yeah. works of art in themselves. But but you know, it's it's I th- I think that's the thing. So you you know you want this to be a kind of like an introduction to the war and some of the kind of big themes and an overview, which you so often don't get. And, you know, so often war is told in, in series of ink spots, isn't it? You know, that don't really connect. It's like, it's like sort of being in London and just constantly popping up from one tube station to another. You kind of don't really understand how, you know, Holbein, high Holbein works sits with angel or, or, or I, I don't know. Foxall fits in with, with Kennington or something, you know, they're just little <laughs> places on the map, but once you start walking around, you sort of go, oh, okay, I get where that road leads to, and that's where it all works out. And I think, you know, what you're trying to do with this is give that 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 whole so that it's not just D-Day sitting in its own isolation or, or, or you know, a battle in Burma sitting in isolation or the Battle of Britain sitting in isolation, that all these things sort of come together and you see how they all kind of fit, fit together into a whole. So that's the idea of it in a kind of sort of, you know, comparatively bite-sized way. And you can, you can read a page of this stuff and then kind of take a little pause and, have a look at one of Keith's big pictures, and then yeah. then kind of read a little bit more. Well, sure, and you can also, do a little bit out, at night. Also, and... point out there's actually James that comes up with the illustration titles. You know, he's the one that suggests the illustration yeah. goes in as well. So we'll, you know, usually obviously it'll match up with the, what he's written on the page. But yeah, it's just James that comes up with right. I want a hurricane here, a hurry bomber in Burma. You know, attacking a machine gun. Wouldn't it be cool to yeah. have a typhoon looking down and absolutely hammering the German column in the Fallet Scout? And Keith comes back and goes, oh, yeah, yeah I'm loving yeah. that idea. <laughs> and then I kind of sit there waiting for the roughs and I kind of, the roughs come through and goes, you know, is everyone happy with that? And everyone always goes, goes yeah, it looks amazing. And then off you go. And then there's kind of eager anticipation for for, for, for when the illustrations come through. I mean, it's it's, it's been a brilliant yeah, no, process. It's been fantastic. I can imagine it feels like Christmas Day waiting for that email and waiting for that message yeah. of those, those rough the pictures. The frustration is, though, is they're all bloody owned by <laughs> Penguin. <laughs> Oh. You know, I want I want to hoover up a whole load of them. I want to have the you know I want to have the Keith Burns wall in my in my new my new garage, which is big going up at the moment, and and that's so, basically because I haven't got any more room for Keith but Keith's artwork in this house. So have you have you have you both got a favourite illustration then? No, I can't say no. I have. I've got lots. Of, I've got lots of ones that I really really love. I still love the Kitty Hawk going over the desert. You know, because it's just so vivid, the colour, the kind of shock of the engine cowling coming across. I love that. Something I mentioned in my review is just how beautifully put together this book is. Uh, like it ge- genuinely feels like a work of art when you're looking through it and like flicking through it. Well, that's fantastic. Thanks. I mean, you know, that's that's absolutely what yeah. we want to hear. Initially, there was a, a few covers. There was a discussion over the cover, um, you know, where it didn't want to be a kind of aviation focusing. That's that's what I tend to do. 
Yeah. And they had they came up ones where it was trying to cover everything for them. I think it was initially going to be the paratroopers on <laughs> yeah. the dropping in into Crete. So it was covering, you know, aviation, but then it, it, it represented all, you know, kind of land scene areas as river in there. But then James just went, what about the B-17? Put the B-17 on the front. <laughs> and then it, it just... Well, just because it looks it looks really cool. It looks really cool. And the problem, the problem was the one one you had, which was a parachutist yeah. coming down, which was great looking at it from, from a guy looking down on a fellow parachute but going down, is it was just, it just all, it all looked a bit yeah, yeah. beige. <laughs> I always kind of think beige is a bad look for a. It's great for an illustration, but it's a bad look for a yeah. book jacket. You know, the whole there's a there's a rule that says that you know that says don't use yellow yeah, or, or don't or don't eat a plate full of book beige jacket. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, anything beige, just don't do it. But so so this one just I just felt it just looked really cool, and you you get that lovely sense of the aluminium or aluminium if you're American, and. But I mean, look at this one. So this this one here of the of the, of the typhoon having just done. You know, this is Operation Chattanooga Choo Choo. Uh, where they're kind of hitting all the trains just before D-Day. The, the the amount of energy in that picture, and I love the fact the sense of movement of the typhoon, the kind of the scratch paintwork on the on the engine cowling on, on that big beast of an air intake, bits of train flying everywhere. I mean, it's just it's absolutely amazing. I love it. I mean, my my personal favorite. I was telling Keith when we were, we were just chatting beforehand. My personal favorite was the the explosion of the atom bomb towards the end. I think that's oh, just right. a poignant image of the end of the war i think it's a beautiful image yeah. as well so i've got well it is but i kind of prefer the one of the b-29s looking yeah. silvery <laughs> so i what thought now aircraft that is eh? <laughs> don't you think i mean b-29s yeah, the... pressurized cockpit you know just just amazing amazing aircraft and actually the one of the um of the plane going crashing down into the aircraft carrier is also really mm. just amazing i mean there certainly isn't a bad illustration from keith in this in this book at all i mean i loved absolutely every single one of them and whilst my favorite was that atom bomb uh, i mean they're all amazing i spent ages looking at them all now i think this is a great time for us to take an ad break before we come back with our listener questions now obviously you love historical content because you are listening to the historians magazine podcast but if you need some more historical content in your life or if you're a history writer or budding history writer looking to start your historical content creator journey, then I have the perfect place for you, and that is thehistorycorner.org or the History Corner blog, as they're known on Instagram. And this is the perfect place for creative people to find a hub for historical writing or those who love living history or photography to find ways to collaborate with the community. So that is thehistorycorner.org and the History Corner blog on Instagram. Great place for contributors and authors to start their historical content creation journey. That is thehistorycorner.org or the History Corner blog on Instagram. If you enjoy the sound of my voice, and I really hope you do because you are listening to the Historians Magazine podcast, I think you'll really enjoy the History of Jackson podcast. The History of Jackson podcast brings up-to-date historical research to you from historians, authors and researchers in an accessible and digestible way that strips away the academic jargon that none of us understand and focuses on the history at the root of the episode. So if that's something that appeals to you and you want to learn more about up-to-date historical research, head to the History of Jackson podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That is the History of Jackson podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. <laughs> So I thought now we'd oh, ask too some many. listener questions uh, from some of the listeners of the oh, podcast. Yeah. Uh, so first, you know, these aren't related to our, uh, to your book. These are just off based off your your two's opinions and thoughts. So Katie Clark asks, if you could travel back in time to any historical event or era, what would it be and why? So Keith, we'll go with you first. It's been tricky, probably for my interest in you know aviation, just somewhere where I could see a ridiculous amount of aircraft in the sky at once, you know, just to see what that's like. You know, you get a tiny sensation if you go to somewhere like Duxford and you see that Bilbao formation at the end where they've got 16 Spitfires and so on. It's absolutely awesome looking and mind-blowing. And I just look at it, watching at them all moving past each other in formation. So I'm looking at the kind of stuff that I'm trying to capture when I'm painting something. And to see it, you know, happen like that, yeah, so I think it'd be something like that where you just – you know, from a, a an interest of trying to figure out the physics and kinetic energy of things moving, it'd be something like that mass formation of aircraft. 
you know, do and or even you know, so it's probably been the Battle of Britain where you know you've got a whole load of hindcuff coming over and then they're being covered by one oh nines and it might be one tens and there and then they're being attacked. It's just it's kinda because of, of where I live now, um and I, I got a really good set of binoculars last year, so I'm obsessed with just going out and just watching birds of prey flying around. <laughs> but in in a similar kind of way, so when you watch a bird of prey and there's a couple of crows trying to attack it off, it's like a fight around a couple of bombers, just watching them all interacting in that way in the same space in the in the air and the skills involved. Yeah, so it would be something like that, I think. Oh, that's a great. But yeah, I, I saw a I saw a kestrel trying to shove off a buzzard yeah, yesterday. It was quite interesting, you know, obviously buzzards because it was actually larger than yeah. a kestrel, but it was amazing to see. Uh, yeah, I, I remember this, this amazing story. There was this guy, a farmer who lived in the next door village called Douglas Mann, and um, he'd been a, a, a schoolboy in the Battle of Britain, and uh, he, his father was quite well to do. And he actually was later of age for D-Day. So he got, he landed on Salt Beach, probably got, he was in a tank and probably got a bullet through the shoulder. Oh. And that was him. And he, he, he then recovered, came back in time for, um, I don't know when he came back, you know, so later on that year, got another bullet. So, so literally his, his entire combat, combat history was about three days of, of inaction of which, both ended up with a bullet in him. But anyway, he survived to a good old age and he lived well into his 90s. But anyway, he told me when when his, his dad lived in this house in, in sort of Sussex, Kent way, uh, and, you know, school holidays in August 1940, and they had a really, really big house. His dad was quite well off and owned a brewery and had this huge farm and state and stuff down in Kent. And he said he remembers seeing his dad on the patio on a recliner. Okay. And he rang the bell. And there was a huge sort of dogfight going on overhead. And he rang the bell and the butler came out. And the butler said, yes, sir. And he said, please, can you bring me my field glasses? Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, so the butler said, very good, sir. Came back with a pair of uh, field glasses, binoculars on a silver salver. And he took them and then led back and just watched the Battle of oh. Britain. <laughs> Of an afternoon, oh, I mean, wow. best, best best viewing sport oh, wow. ever, and yeah. um, yeah, just an amazing story. So I'm kind of with Keith on that. I, I think watching some amazing dogfight going on over here. I mean, how exhilarating would that be? Being fantastic to be a, an observer, yeah. but as long as you were completely yeah. safe in the Battle yeah. of Midway, I think I think that would be really yeah. really incredible if you could just sort of float above or, or somehow, formations of but, but not be in danger. You know, Fockerwolves and stuff flying through. Horrific as it is, but it just oh. yeah. Oh, just to see it being so amazing wouldn't it yeah so i'm kind of with you on that that's they're, they're both amazing answers i think you know our listeners are going to absolutely love them and i you know just experienced like little things like that at duxford you know i couldn't imagine what like, watching the actual battle of britain yeah. would be like and people used to go into so well uh, inevitably you'd, you'd think there were more aircraft than there were that's yeah. what you'd think yeah. you'd think I mean, the amount of times I've heard, I've, I've spoken to people and they said, "Oh," and I looked up and the sky was black with black with swastikas, and you sort of think, "Well, it wasn't really," because you know they're coming in at fourteen thousand feet and you absolutely couldn't see across at all. Um, but anyway, whatever. And um, and you know, it's amazing because you can't contradict a veteran. <laughs> no. You're not allowed to. And um, uh, and so you know. Uh, anyway, but but you know you see the sky black, but actually you know the, it was very rare that you'd ever have more than a hundred Luftwaffe planes. So. Even that, like hundred. <laughs> so our last question is from an anonymous fan. Um, so I've amended it slightly fit for the both of you. So what was the most interesting piece of history or information uh, that you came across during your research for this book, and or when preparing to do your illustrations, Keith? Was it the end of the war and this? Pacific, and I spoke to you, James, and James came back and you just be reading about um, US submarines in the Pacific. And, and how, oh, yes. How yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. The, the, yeah, I'd agree with that. And that, that was absolutely fascinating. There's no idea how many you know troops had lost their lives in due, due to um, US subs. So that was the thing. Like, and then I, I, you know, to get that pile of information and then do the illustration with the subs in was just absolutely fascinating. And it, it does. It, yeah, U.S. submarine, U.S. submarines in the in the Pacific and Second World War, particularly from kind of, sort of middle nineteen forty three on, onwards, is just absolutely amazing. It's 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 it should be better known, and of course it's not because it you know happens under the surface or on the surface and a long way from home, and there's no one really to watch it, and you know, but 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 it's incredible those amazing submarines like tang and mm. things like that you know the, the, the incredible names they have was it silverfish or something i can't remember what they're called but it's just absolutely amazing absolutely amazing amazing characters just 
wreaking so yeah. much havoc on the Japanese. And then, then also, it's, it's quite an odd thing to be illustrating as well because you hear all these all these facts and then you start painting it, and then it's actually quite really quite grim. You know, it can be quite kind of upsetting yeah. sometimes when you you're painting a U-boat. It's just you know launched launched the, the um, torpedoes off, and then there's one where the ship was sinking in the back, and while well, you're painting it, and I was doing like people on the surface of people going down. You know, it's, it is actually yeah, it's quite an odd thing to have to illustrate. I think what I've taken away from like from this conversation is it's actually been quite a collaborative oh, process yeah, yeah. creating yeah. the book together. Oh yeah, yeah, we're tight as <laughs> the <ironic. Yeah>. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Just before we go, James, I wanted to ask you yep. a couple of questions about your festival, Chalk Valley History Festival. What's yep. this festival and what is it about? And, you know, what exciting things have you got going on there? Yeah, well, it's, it started in 2011. That's when we began it. And it was um, it really it was just a fundraiser for my local cricket club um, for the Pavilion Fund. Uh, and it went quite well the first year. So we then got a bit carried away and, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And now it's turned, turned into this massive sort of behemoth. Um, but the, the thing about it is it's, it's just, a, you know, if you're a history fan, this is a place to be because it's set in a beautiful part of the world. It's surrounded by kind of lovely, beautiful chalk downland. You know, it's, it's set, it, we hold it in sort of pretty much midsummer. And what you get is this incredible experience, this sort of different means of, of enjoying the past and history and what it means and, and having your eyes open to different different things. With it. So, you can you know, you can have incredible discussions on you know the, the historical context of of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Um, you can have amazing keynotes by incredible historians, whether it be sort of Dan Snow or my brother Tom or Peter Frankopan or Tracy Borman or I don't know Kate Moss or people like that. That's Kate Moss, the writer, not the yeah. model. I hate to uh, um, uh, and you know we have a comedy panel shows. A sort of have I got history for you called Histrionics, which you know this year has got Charlie Higson, Al Murray, Ian Hislop uh, amongst the panels. Um, but you can also do, you know, living history. There's performance, amazing performance. You can, you know, you can get your hands dirty. You can, you can watch arrows being made. You know, so there's a real, there's a real mixture. And at the same time, you can sort of camp and and enjoy all the things that you would expect from a, a, a summer festival in the in the middle of a beautiful part of the English countryside. So all the booze and food and stalls and and all the rest of it. It's a, it's a real mixture. It's it's there's nothing like it because. Other history festivals tend to be just sort of, you know, literary history festivals. This is absolutely not a literary history festival. This is a festival of history, which has great historians there, but also has so much more. So this year you can see, you know, about as accurate a medieval joust as you're ever going to see. You can see uh, um, an Iron Age house and people that live in it and are making stuff and just existing. You can see um, Cold War things. You can see um, the Gurkhas, uh, current army Gurkhas in the British Army dressed in 1994 kit um, as the second seven Gurkha rifles, you know, operating with a Sherman tank. Um, you can see Napoleonics. You can see loads and loads of medieval stuff. You can see Tudor, how they dyed wool and, and prepared wool and, and, and stuff in Tudor times. So it's, a, it's amazing and historic food and, you know, a whole host of stuff and a fantastic yeah. bar. Yeah. And lots and, and and lots of music, lots of live yeah. music, um, you know. So it's it's, it's great. It's 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 a it's a total yeah, off, isn't it? Okay. Past five You've been years times. around and painting and just taking it all in. It is absolutely amazing. My favorite because it yeah. just for all the reasons James explained. There's nothing yeah. like it. Yeah, it's really great. I mean, I'm re- I'm really looking forward to to going and yeah, and no, I can't wait to see that. The jousts and doing some of the talks. You know, it's going to be a great great thing to go and experience. And I hope, yeah. you know, did you manage to raise money for your pavilion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's why I was doing this walk that you were talking about last week was to kind of raise some more money for the cricket club. You know, it just, it just sucks me dry, that cricket club, I tell you. But, but, but yeah. I bet that but, pavilion um... must be massive now. <laughs> well, it's, there's a what, what, what centrepiece picture is a, is a parked typhoon um, in Normandy with a whole bunch of ground crew and pilots playing cricket <laughs> beside it. <laughs> Society got awesome. my stamp on it, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so how can people get tickets to go to Chalk then? I'll just go to the the, the website. There's, you, you know, there's, 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 there's plenty of tickets. Um, and as I say, you're, you know, your entrance ticket just gets you so much, gets you loads of talks and things to see and do. There's, there's no way you could get around the whole thing one day. But um, uh, cvhf.org.uk is the website. So that's charlievictorhotelgolf.org.uk. 
I'll make sure that links in every, uh, in the description for everyone to go and click well, on and go and grab their tickets. Yeah, twenty sixth of June to the second of July. So a week of 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 fun. Oh, hopefully, you know, as we were talking earlier, hopefully it's sunny. There's no rain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully, fingers crossed. So I want to give you both now an opportunity to kind of shout out and share anything that you guys are working on right now that you want to promote so that our listeners can go away and, and, and find out more about what you do and interact with your work and yourselves even more. So, Keith, would you want to throw out what you're um, working I on? I just finished another Johnny Red comic, which is great fun, and I got to do a cover on um, the story written by John Wagner, I think he wrote it 30 years ago, called HMS Nightshade. And it's one of my favourite stories. It's about, um, it's about the crew of a Corvette and just all the, uh, the trials that they go through. Um, so to, yeah, to be able to do a cover on that was just a dream job. Yeah, and uh, what else have I been doing? Yeah, I just do. I work for um, Aces High Gallery, so I do a lot of fine art paints for them. Um, and I think there might be another Johnny Red coming up. Oh, and stamps. Yeah, I've been doing oh, stamps awesome. as well. It just it bounces around doing all sorts. Semi professional. Yeah. say, Jack of all trades, master of none, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm just I'm just putting to bed my next 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 sort of big narrative history, which is um, called the Savage Storm. It's uh, the Battle for Italy, 1943, um, and no one's ever really done that before. They tend to sort of go straight into Casino in the beginning of 1944 and and, and don't bother with what came before. But it's absolutely fascinating. So that's been good. Um, and then it's sort of you know more podcasts really, um, yeah, which I do with Al Murray called We Have Ways of Making You Talk, and um, and that's a lot of fun. So you know, if anyone's interested in all this stuff and wants to know more about the big picture, the Second World War, as well as the nuts and bolts, um, you know, we'd love to have you joining our listener, our listener numbers. Well, thank you very much for coming on, guys. You know, you've got so many interesting projects coming on. Um, you know, Chalk Valley, your your illustrations, Keith, and and your upcoming book, James. You know, I think people are going to absolutely love getting involved and going and look at them and listening to them and so on. So, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for listening to this special episode of the Historians Magazine podcast, guys. I really appreciate it. Now, if you want to listen to the Historians Magazine podcast ad free, make sure you subscribe to Past and Present Plus on Apple Podcasts. That will enhance your listening experience so you don't have to listen to adverts during the podcast. Also, keep your eyes peeled for Series 3, which is coming out very soon, which is based around our motorsport edition of the Historian's Magazine.